0: John, today we're going to talk about, uh, amongst other things, a fascinating creature from the depths of the ocean called gulper eel. Um, what, 2005? You were out on a scientific expedition. Let's just take us back to that expedition. Where, what were you doing there? What was it about? What did you find?
1: Do you know, I just uh, left the BBC and I was looking for projects and a scientist called Julian Partridge kindly invited me to a- an expedition run by Harbour Branch and run out of the Scripps Institute, which is a famous marine research station in San Diego, California, on a ship called the New Horizon to some islands off San Diego called the Channel Islands. And, and one of them, is the southernmost, is Clemente. And, and Clemente uh, marks the beginning of a very deep ocean trench, which is kind of a scar in the seabed that goes for i don't know many miles i think perhaps 50 miles and it's very very deep and julian uh, my colleague and friend he was uh, interested in collecting some of these deep sea fishes he studies deep sea fish vision so uh, i as a uh, filmmaker i went with him I was fascinated were they trawling or were they filming to the great depths So this was a research ship, the the New Horizons, about uh, 200 feet long. I mean, it's a big ship, but it's uh, basically uh, a trawler, I mean, a scientific trawler. And what happens is it it puts this uh, special net down, which is perhaps 50 feet across at the mouth and uh, tapers towards a canister at the bottom end, which is called the cod end. I don't know why. I guess that's where the cod were and when, when they were fishing the cod. But anyway, effectively, it's collecting a lot of things in the canister. Now, why doesn't the whole net get clogged up? Well, it's because they can open and shut the mouth at different depths. And they put it down to 600 metres, which is a sort of intermediary depth. It's neither at the bottom of the sea nor is it at the top. Yeah, but I
0: imagine as you're standing on deck or sitting on deck and the, the net has gone down, uh, there's a great sense of expectation while you're trawling and then also pulling the net up.
1: Yes, that's right. It is exciting. I mean, that's what I like about the ocean. It's like um, it, it's like a lucky dip, you know, you never know what you're going to find. And there is that, indeed, that feeling of what we're going to find next. You know, the density of creatures, although it's a very big place to live, the the sea. I mean, we're talking about three quarters of the Earth, probably, you know, the, the place, the volume of, of space there. But it's quite sparsely populated by all accounts. And uh, you might get one fish like this gulper eel, you know, I don't know, every mile or two. And you have to trawl for many hours to get anything at all. In fact, they usually set the nets for between four to six hours or sometimes overnight. And so, you know, it's a lot of waiting. So can you describe the the sensation of standing,
0: witnessing, what it's like when they do bringing the trawl up john and what what do they do with the species i imagine they must have special tanks because of course i think most people know that at those great pressures
1: animals won't survive unless you pressurize them when you bring them back up it's it's more to to do with the temperature actually but we'll get to that um so while you're on the back of a ship that on the stern and there's quite a lot of swell usually because you're way out at sea i mean you're probably 50 miles out at sea you're standing safely back with your life jacket on and the deck's swelling And you can see the cables being pulled, quite a thick cable on this net. And it comes up and eventually you see the top of the net break the water and it comes up onto deck. The scientists swarm around it and they're excited too, you can tell, even though they've been doing it for years. And they open up the the lid and they push the contents into a big plastic trough. And at that point, all the creatures kind of spread out and they, they sift through them segregating the different types so you've got these big red shrimp which are um, deep sea shrimp and you've got um, some squids and you've got various weird looking fish of which the gulp reel is one and then they quickly uh, store this in a cold area on the ship it's actually the cold it's the temperature difference because at, at the depths they live it's very cold and it, as you bring them up it's the heat uh, shock that helps to kill them so keeping them cold increases their survivability so I imagine the
0: uh, gulper eel was something that pretty much uh, looked quite spectacular on, on, you know, the first pouring into the tank.
1: Yes, it's amazing. I mean, it it, the, it looks like a very long eel with a very big mouth. I mean, it, it's called the pelican eel. And, and it if you imagine the, the uh, bill of a pelican sort of, without the pelican on it <laughs> that's you're getting quite close to what a gulper eel is like um, I've seen a photograph
0: and, of it John and I've been watching your video obviously now the, the, today as well and, and we'll put links up to that but I, I mean it is all mouth isn't it?
1: it it is actually do you know it's um it's not a true eel although it's called an eel it's related to the true eels the eels are a really successful group of animals uh, mostly all marine although there are some freshwater ones but all of them breed in the sea, and uh, an eel is basically a fish that's got very long, and and a lot of its fins have have condensed into the into the tail, and um, it moves by um, waves going down its body rather than sort of flapping its fins, um, and that's an eel. But uh, so what is a gulper eel? A gulper eel is is closely related, but it's got some adaptations for living in the deep. It's got no swim bladder, which is the thing that um, uh, Gives spoil. fish buoyancies. Exactly. And and the reason it's got rid of that is because any air sac, uh, as you know, when you go down in the water, air uh, is compressed. And as you come up, it's, it expands. Um, so having an, any air cavity really is a hindrance to uh, deep sea creatures because they can sort of get wildly out of control with their buoyancy as they go up, as the air expands. So it's just got rid of it altogether in the gulper eel. Um, There's a few other weird things. It doesn't have any pelvic bones. Um, And so they think the reason it's this shape is that actually um, it doesn't eat big fish, although it could get its mouth around things that um, are bigger than itself because its mouth distorts like a boa constrictor. But it it probably is, is eating shrimps of various sorts, and it might even be filter feeding them in that its mouth is very big and like a big sack, almost like a blue whale. And if you look in one of the things as we, because what we did when we, when we got it out of the uh, holding tank was we put it in a filming tank, which is something called a chrysal, which is um, a round tank, which has a water flow, which, uh, which stops the animals from sticking to the front of the, glass and you can look at it and film it properly and the mouth is so black it was the blackest black thing i've ever seen Uh, i mean you'd have thought there was nothing blacker than black but but my goodness that was it's that sort of velvety black inside its mouth and that presumably is is you know when it has its mouth open underwater nothing sees it coming Um, i think it's probably important to say
0: that the mouth isn't always open because i've seen some video of it where it is more e-like. So the the mouth must extend in some way so that this pelican shaped mouth can gape open yeah. or be entirely yeah. hidden.
1: I mean I think you know that was from the Nautilus thing recently you could see that the mouth was closed. Uh, and that's right, its mouth can shut of course um and um whenever we see these creatures they're probably in trouble because they're probably caught in a light. Um it's not their world at all. They don't live in the lights, they live in the dark. So the way they think it hunts is they it kind of curls its tail over its head. And its tail is very long and thin and has a bioluminescence, a glowing lure on the end of it. So it dangles this tail over the top of its mouth. I think it keeps its mouth open because its mouth is so, so black when it's in its prey hunting mode. Um, and then presumably shrimps and things drift into it. It doesn't have very big teeth. It's only got serrations on the edge of its mouth. There's nothing big about it. It's just a very membranous um, sack underneath its mouth. Its skin is very floppy. It, it, it is truly adapted to that environment, isn't it?
0: Down, down deep, in the dark, huge cavernous mouth to try and catch prey that's passing by. A, a wonderful whip-like tail with, uh, is it pink bioluminescence that it dangles in front of its mouth? And as you say, this deep black
1: cavernous mouth. I mean, you just wouldn't want to run into it if you're a wee shrimp, would you? No. I mean, that gets that's interesting because that whole world is so, so different to what we know. Water absorbs light and sunlight disappears. I've been lucky enough to be down to about 2000 feet. And um, what happens in the submarine when you look up, you just see the light fade and it's like a kind of a twilight. And then you, in fact, it's called the twilight zone and then uh, then it gets completely black as you go even deeper. And so they live in total darkness. You took the opportunity, though,
0: John, as you were out filming, to film quite a lot of other things that came out of the the cod end of the net, didn't you?
1: Yeah, we did. And uh, another thing which um, obviously fascinates people, because I can see I've put a lot of these things up on the YouTube channel, is the dragonfish, and um, that's another extraordinary fish which has got that does have pretty big teeth. There's some, there's some big. There's some things with big teeth down there but there's all sorts of different designs and and to our eyes very strange describe um, the, the dra- dragonfish to me do you know the dragonfish uh, there's several different species um it's got quite a lot of pointy teeth when it opens up white pointy teeth but it's black again you know and it, actually if you look closely it's got a red uh, bar under its eye and that uh, that's interesting because most of the creatures down there are looking in the blue spectrum Uh, The red is is pretty much invisible down there. In fact, uh, if you know about how water takes light away, it takes the red away first. That's why everything underwater is is very blue. And uh, red light hardly travels at all in water. So why has it got this little red light? It's got red bioluminescence underneath its eye of the dragonfish. And the theory is that it uses it as a torch. It switches it on so it can have a look, whereas its prey can't see it and so it's got an advantage so it can see its prey but it's prey can't see it another of nature's wonderful adaptions
0: i think this conversation is is demonstrating john the difference that 10 15 years has made in social media for one thing because you've been able to put stuff up on youtube and youtube was starting around when you you did this dive and of course You've been filming most recently for for Blue Planet. So the technology uh, that we use now to uh, film at great depths has changed hugely. But also um, the way people are consuming, uh, I mean, even the way we're podcasting at the minute, sitting talking about uh, wildlife, it has changed very quickly, hasn't it?
1: Yes, uh, I think it has. Um, I I had to a little bit because I worked on Blue Planet one and Blue Planet 2 and uh, so I know the difference between the two and um, yes, of course we we used um, new technologies. Um, but relatively our understanding of the deep sea is still pretty crude. I mean basically you know to go in and drop a net and then mash it all up at the cod end and then have a look what you've got left is a fairly primitive way of doing it.
0: Whereas nowadays you go down and as far as possible film the animals in their own habitat behaving
1: the way they would normally. Well, you'd like to, but it's just so deadly expensive. Um, that's it. So even that cod end trawler, so you, you put it, anything that re- involves a lot of people is expensive. So all these scientific ships, um, they're running a cost of about $40,000 a day, something like that. Um, and so, uh, um, you know, two, two a month uh trip can be easily you know 5 million dollars but that is relatively cheaper than going down in a submarine i also went down in, in blue planet 1 for um uh we went down to, in the gulf of mexico in the johnson sea Link submarines and that was costing about 20000 dollars a dive i think that was the cost price something probably you know if you wanted to buy a trip it's down to the to the seabed that's the sort of level you're going to pay for about 2 or 3 hours down at the seabed well,
0: I think the I think the cost and the economics of it are are interesting, but to be honest, not as interesting to me as having you describe what it's like to go down in one of those submarines to the depths. To just try and take us down uh, on one of those dives, maybe your first dive, and describe what it's like. I imagine it's claustrophobic for a start. I don't think
1: I would be brave enough to do it. It is claustrophobic a little bit, but the, the the interest of it takes you over. I I went in a, a 4 man submarine, the Johnson Sea Link Two, which is um, run by Harbour Branch, and I think now have been decommissioned. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do instead, but um, anyway, um, again, it was on a very large ship, and uh, we uh, you see this thing on the deck. It looks like a a big goldfish bowl, you know, about the size of a of a average trampoline if you imagine a, a trampoline in people's gardens um that's what the front capsule looks like and then behind that is is a uh, another cylinder and uh we had the cameraman in the front and i was in the back and then there's two other crew so there's there's the pilot and then there's a there's a secondary assistant crew and and i was with him in the in the uh, rear of the submarine and you go in through a hatch and you can't stand up you're in this tube at the back so uh and then they then they lock the seals on it Um, and then you're lifted on this thing called an a-frame which is a bit like a fairground ride in that you know it's going to swing you out over the sea and uh you you know i I can see through a porthole i can see what's happening i can see the ship go by i can see us splash into the water and the and the the line of the water on the on the porthole and uh you can see all the bubbles as they they expel the air and the and the uh Submarine starts sinking, and you hear all the commands of the pilot, and you can hear the conversation between the pilot and the ship. It's uh, it's slightly muffled, um, and gradually more so uh, because water is a very poor conductor of signals, and it's not, it's not attached. Uh, the cable's released, so now the uh, submarine is free swimming. You're on your own. Um, you're on your own. Yeah, and you, so you go down and down and as you look out the window and you can see slightly upwards you can see there's a little blue glow from the surface which gradually gets less and less and you've got a a, a gauge in feet and you can see yourself going down and down you know 500 feet are you aware
0: of sinking apart from
1: looking at the gauge are you aware of movement you can see uh, a flow by the window, and as you get into the dark, you can see what's called bioluminescence. It's like little fireworks in the water, and it's green um, and blue light and uh, sort of fairly random flashes all the time. And it's the little creatures you're bumping into because they all have these warning lights when you bump into them.
0: So although um, you're in a very tiny capsule and you've described it as being quite claustrophobic, when you're down in the depths and you, you, you're in a perspex tube or a bubble or whatever, are you struck by the vastness of the of the ocean
1: you're certainly struck by the idea that there is a place on this planet that we don't know about um and it's a bit like going to mars or something you know because uh, you think hang on a minute i thought this place was um you know it was it has mountains and it's got um trees and things and suddenly Think, no, maybe I should rethink about where I'm living. You know, um, the the world is different in many places. And uh, as you get down to the seabed, you come across these bushes of tube worms, and some of them are thousands of years old, tens of thousands of years old. Um, It's very cold, and not necessarily in the submarine, but I know it's very cold outside. It's probably about two centigrade or maybe two to four centigrade. And you're in this uh, strange world, and you can see the seabed, of course, when it gets down to the seabed. But above your head is maybe a mile or so of water, which is quite a strange feeling. And now this, the ship is a little bit more distant. Very skilled, these pilots. They'll they'll move along maybe 20 feet above the seabed. And then there's this wonderful place, because we were diving in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, called the Brine Pool. And the Brine Pool is a super concentrated salt lake. And it's very, very weird, because it looks like a, a lake does when you're on land, having said that. This, this landscape is different. Actually, this looks very similar to looking, being at the edge of a lake on the land. That's astonishing. Um, so you're in the, dip- oh, the yeah. depths
0: of the ocean and you can see a body, a different body of water. Is it a different color?
1: Well, yes, it is. It, it, what is it? Super concentrated salt. So um, places like the Gulf of Mexico are, um, are constantly over geological historic time, have evaporated and then flooded and evaporated and then flooded. And every time you do that, you uh, basically make salt. You kind of make stronger and stronger salt. Um, and you've got these um, pockets of of um, super concentrated salt, which is much softer than the surrounding geology, and it gets pushed upwards. And eventually, you get these pinnacles of super concentrated salt which form these lakes and so and they have a very strange shoreline the shoreline is covered with mussels, with quite large muscles about the size of your hand and they um are living so what you know what the heck are they living on they and they've discovered that they've got a different metabolism to most animals on earth they, they're living off um sulfate bonds i think there's some chemistry of the substances that are there hydrogen and sulfur Yes. And uh, obviously, they, very
0: highly adapted
1: to live uh, right very at the high. edge of, of that. Well, sort of, course, of and we say and, adapted. They, of course, might be some of the earliest life forms because that is one theory about where life on this planet started around hydrothermal vents on the seabed. And uh, and the most primitive forms of light are basically using elementary chemicals to break down to get their energy. So, I mean, basically, life is a is a, a thing that needs energy, and and obviously not too fussy where it gets it from. And, and um maybe that was one of the earliest and simplest ways to get energy was to break down chemicals around these hydrothermal vents and but do anyway, we know if animals live in the middle of these licks? no well what happens is that um because the salt is so so concentrated it kills things if they're, they're, there's um there's there's creatures that fall into it and they think if you could get in there that you, you'd find you know a bit like the tar pits in uh in los angeles they'd find hundreds and millions of, of creatures down there that have died in that salt there is an eel which can survive the salt and it does that with great advantage because of course it then can take these creatures that are getting knocked out by the salt um, so um anyway you know you can it's almost like you can it blows your mind it blows your imagination certainly
0: how did you deal with it psychologically
1: well I think um, you know people ask me often if I was afraid it didn't help that they'd dubbed this tube i was in the coffin that's what they called it <laughs> and they, t- <laughs> they told me about a sad incident that had happened there but um i mean it was very safe really and you know you're in the hands of professionals but uh i was just so fascinated that i just couldn't think of anything else it was just like you know i, I if i'd been a a boy and, and you would told me i was going to go in a submarine i'd have been amazed actually i do w- once remember telling my friend in primary school Chris Jones, his name was. If you're listening, Chris, Chris, I'm going to go in a submarine, and uh, he he kind of probably probably hit me or something. He, probably <laughs> he laughed. He laughed incredulously. Probably laughed, yeah, and, and I would have laughed as well. But so that was it, you know, knowing how uh, amazing this was, and that I was privileged to see it.
0: Well, look, John, we started out talking about the gulper eel. And uh, it's been fascinating listening. Uh, You've done lots of diving and lots of filming across the world, and that's certainly something that we'll return to in future podcasts.